0: If you got a Bible, I think I am going to go through Galatians, and we're going to go back to chapter 1. We were in chapter 6 last week, but I kind of decided uh, we're going to look at chapter 1 today. So if you will turn to Galatians 1, the title of the message is, A Question Turning Away from Good News. We'll begin reading. Let's pray first. Father, just ask you, Lord, once again, as we always do, that you'll speak to our hearts and enlighten our eyes and help draw us closer to you, Lord, and appreciate more the gospel, the good news that you preach to us, and the significance of it, and said it's a word from you. I just ask you will make all that real to us today, Father, and we pray that in Jesus' name. So looking here in Galatians 1, beginning in verse 1, as he writes, Paul, an apostle, not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brethren who are with me, to the churches of Galatia, Grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for our sins that He might deliver us from this present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I marvel that you are turning away so soon from Him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another, but there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you, than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone preaches another gospel, any other gospel to you, than what you have received, let him be accursed. For do I now persuade men or God, or do I seek to please men? For if I still pleased men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. But I make known to you, brethren, that the gospel which I preached by me is not according to man. For I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but it came through the revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former conduct in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. And I advanced in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries in my own nation, being more exceedingly zealous for the traditions of my father. But... When it pleased God, who separated me from my mother's womb, and called me through his grace to reveal his Son in me, that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately confer with flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went to Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then, after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to see Peter and remained with him fifteen days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. Now concerning the things which I write to you, indeed, before God, I do not lie. Afterward, I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was unknown by face to the churches of Judea, which were in Christ. But they were hearing only. He who formerly persecuted us now preaches the faith which he he once tried to destroy, and they glorified God in me. We're going to ask the question, how important is the gospel or the good news? We have this letter, Paul, written to the Galatians, and that will tell us. Because Paul not only uses passionate language in here, he's obviously upset, he's angry, and he's quite sarcastic in what he writes. And why do I say that? Well, for one thing, in... This letter to the Galatians, he doesn't begin the letter like he does to the other churches. He begins by naming himself as the author. But even in doing that, he adds something here that he doesn't add to any of the other letters. And we'll talk about that in a minute. Then he names who he's writing to just briefly to the churches of Galatia, which is just a common way of opening a letter. And then he follows that with a short prayer for grace and peace. Okay, but normally in all of his other letters, In this letter, instead of giving this lengthy prayer of thanksgiving for the love, the faith, and the devotion of the Galatian church, he does that in every other letter that he writes, if you go back and read them. Romans, Corinthians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, all the other ones. I praise you and I thank God for your love, your devotion, your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and your love to all the saints. He doesn't do that at all. Instead of that, he just lays right into them. And he says, look at verse 6. This is where normally he would have his prayer at Thanksgiving. He says, I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel. He is upset. He's like, I marvel. I wonder. I just frankly astonished. You're so soon removed. I can't believe it. There's no praise there for him in that. And then when you look over in chapter 3 and verse 1, look what he says to him. He says, oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth? And the O, that O is there. It's in there. That's not somebody put that's in there for emotion. Jesus used that when the Syrophoenician woman pressed in for her daughter. He says, oh, woman, great is thy faith. And (laughs) he also used that same expression when he was talking to the two men on the road to Emmaus. And they didn't understand what he was saying. And he's like, oh, foolish ones, Jesus said to that. And slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Oh, foolish ones, Jesus said. And Paul is using that same expression here. Oh, foolish Galatians. Now, it's not the word that where he says you're not to call any man a fool, which is actually the word. It means moron. This is a different word here, but it's not a complimentary word. The word foolish here means you are senseless. You're dull-witted. You have no understanding. Basically, he's telling them, oh, foolish Galatians, are you people this dim-witted that you don't get it? No understanding? What's wrong with you people? So he can't believe what he's heard. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? And that literally means who has cast a spell on you? Who's Charmed you. And he's saying it's just this subtle, demonic seduction away from the truth. And he can't believe it. Are you that foolish, that dim witted, that you let this happen to yourselves? I mean, that's how he's talking to him. And then in chapter 5, he sarcastically suggests that what this is all about is they're saying faith in Jesus Christ isn't enough. The Judaizers are saying, well, not in addition to that, you've got to keep the law, you've got to be circumcised and obey these food laws. And so in chapter 5, he sarcastically speaks to those people and he says, These ones that are wanting you to be circumcised, I could wish that they would emasculate themselves. Not just circumcise themselves, but emasculate themselves, make themselves eunuchs. Cut themselves off is how it's translated in the King james It literally means, though, to emasculate yourself because a person like that was cut off from the temple. I just wish they were all the way cut off. Literally and figuratively. I mean that's pretty sarcastic language he's using. And so why is Paul so upset with this group? The reason is is he has come to these people. It's southern Galatia. These people were in a dark region. All the regions of the Gentiles were dark. But he finds them bound in their sins. Involved in false worship, lying in darkness. And he proclaims to them the glorious liberty of the truth of the gospel. And the thing is they received it like... Most groups would when they would originally come for Paul with joy and signs and power. Only to now he's saying that's the way you received everything. And now you're embracing this message that is the complete opposite of that. Instead of the grace of God through the cross, now you're embracing this gospel that tells you it's by your flesh and keeping the law that you're going to be made right with God. And he's like, did you receive eternal life by doing something or simply by trusting in the promise I would say of John 3:16. It's like when they got bitten in the wilderness, what could those people do? do not have any medicine doctors in hospitals. It was supernatural. They had to simply look at the cross. Nothing else they could do because if they were going to look at themselves and try to figure out what they could do to themselves, it wasn't going to work, right? It's a, Everyone that looked. On the cross, a simple look of faith. God supernaturally healed them of a illness that was going to kill them. Those snake bites going to kill them. But everyone that had a simple look of faith, nothing they were doing. And I read this illustration. I thought it was good. <laughs> and it says Longfellow, the poet. He could take a worthless sheet of paper and write a poem on it and make it worth six thousand dollars. That's genius. Rockefeller could sign his name to a piece of paper and make it worth millions. And that's capital. Right. Van Gogh could take a 50 cent piece of canvas, paint a picture on it, make it worth thousands. That's art. But God and only God can take a life sinful and without joy, wash it in the blood of Christ, put his spirit in it and make it a blessing to humanity. And that is salvation. That's grace. That's the power of God. And there is no effort needed, is there? No circumcision, no effort needed. And that is Paul's message. That's the message he was preaching everywhere. And that's his frustration with these Galatians. In Galatians 3, he asked him this. He says, this only I want to learn from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? And again, he says, Are you so foolish? Having begun in the Spirit, are you now being made perfect by the flesh? Now, we're not filled with the Spirit being led of the Spirit, seeking the Spirit, and all of that. And it's the flesh. Is the flesh do you any good at all? I mean, all you have to do is read Romans 7. In my flesh dwells no good thing. Flesh is powerless, right? And so... He's writing this letter, just to give the background real quick, he's not writing to one church. It's not the church of Galatia. He's writing to the churches, plural, in Galatians. It's a region which is now modern Turkey. It is the first letter that he ever wrote, A.D. 48. It's the first letter he wrote to any of the churches. And he wrote it, just in case you're curious. So they still have this circumcision question being raised. They solve that once and for all, basically, at the Jerusalem Council In Acts 15. Well, he wrote this letter before that council had taken place. His evangelism and first missionary journey is where he went and evangelized this region of Galatia. And you read about that in Acts 14. And I'm telling you, it was a rough trip. It was a rough missionary trip. That's the one where he was stoned and left for dead. And God raised him up. And that's also the one Acts 14:22 Paul's like it is through much tribulation that we'll enter the kingdom of God and he experienced much tribulation on that missionary journey. So at a great price think about it it was a great price and a great sacrifice to him personally that Paul evangelized these saints in Galatia and they saw God move mightily and he did too and he had a great affection for these people as he did all the churches And his problem is, yet you have allowed these false brethren to come in and turn you, not only against the gospel, but also, he says, you have turned them against me. You people are turned against me. And he has to reestablish not only his authority as an apostle, but also the gospel message. That's what he's doing here in these first two chapters. That's the main thing. Paul has to establish his authority as an apostle and as where his gospel message came from. So look in verses 1 and 2. Go back to Galatians 1, the first two verses. And he says, Paul, an apostle. And he, he adds here, this is nowhere else added, this apologetic answer. Not from men. I'm an apostle. Not from men, nor through man. But I'm an apostle through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. That's what he says. And he's saying... I don't have an apostleship because of human origin. It's not from a human origin. It began with God. So I'm not an apostle because some man thought that I would make a good one or because my father was one. It was passed on down to me. He says, I'm an apostle because God himself, Jesus Christ and the father decreed that I would be an apostle. So he's telling them, listen. Y'all are wondering about me. These people are talking me down. He ran into the same thing in Corinth. But he says, it was God Almighty who made me an apostle. And these false teachers, they can't say that. But I can. And he also goes on, he talks about God the Father. This is the only place in any of his introductions that he talks about the resurrection. He says, and God the Father, Jesus Christ, and God the Father who raised him from the dead. But why is he bringing that in? Why is he bringing the resurrection in at this point? Because when did Paul receive his commission and appointment as an apostle? When did that happen? On the Damascus Road in Acts chapter 9. Don't we know that? And when the Lord, the risen Lord Jesus Christ appeared to him and spoke to him, that's when he was given his authority and that's when he also was given his message. And Paul loved to tell the story. Three times in detail in the book of Acts, that whole story of what happened to him on the Damascus Road. And one time he's telling that story to King Agrippa, to a king. And here's what he told King Agrippa, kind of cutting in on what he told him. But he said, after the Lord had knocked him to the ground and he said, Paul, Paul, why do you persecute me? And he said this to Agrippa. I said, who are you, Lord? And he, Jesus, said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, but rise and stand on your feet. For I have appeared to you for this purpose, to make you a minister and a witness, both of the things which you have seen and of the things which I will yet reveal to you. I will deliver you from the Jewish people as well as from the Gentiles, to whom I now send you to open their eyes in order to return them from darkness to light And from the power of Satan To God so He's saying that's where my authority came from It's a divine authority I didn't make this up This isn't something I was even looking for And also the other significance Of him mentioning the resurrection Of the Lord Jesus Christ Is because the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ Was raised from the dead It signifies that a new age has dawned And we'll see that new age in a a minute contrasts with this present evil age but we're living in two ages at once whether we realize that or not why does he mention at the very end there and all the brethren who are with me because usually if you think about it you think about all of his other letters that he writes he'll usually say paul and timothy and titus he might add one or two people but here he adds and all the brethren that are with me a bunch of them. You know why he's saying that? Because he's saying they all agree with the gospel I'm preaching. That's what he's telling these people. This is just not something I'm I'm holding in isolation, and it's different from everybody else. He's like, no, all these brethren that are with me, they're wholeheartedly backing me. They're standing behind me. They're backing this gospel that I'm preaching to you, and you're off getting another one that they don't back. That's really what he's telling them that, and saying that. So not only was his, he has to deal with his authority as an apostle here in verses 1 and 2, not only was his authority as an apostle questioned, but also the origin of his message is questioned. So apparently, these Judaizers, you kind of have to realize what they're saying by how Paul is addressing the issues and how he's answering things in this letter, but apparently they're insinuating that he got his message from the apostles in Jerusalem. And that the only thing is he's not giving them the whole truth and nothing but the truth that he's leaving things out because he's wanting to be a man pleaser. And that's what we have here. If you look down in verse 10, he says, for do I now persuade men or God or do I seek to please men? He's saying in my gospel, in my message, this is what I'm accused of that I'm trying to please men. He said, no way, because he says, if I still please men by what I preached, he says, I wouldn't be a bond servant. So he's saying, "Ah, that doesn't apply here with me. So he defends his message. He goes on to defend his message just like his apostleship. He's saying, neither one of them came from man. So look what it says in verses 11 and 12. He says, I want to make known to you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man, for I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but it came through the revelation of Jesus Christ. He says, Listen, guys, I want you to know something whenever that's like a formula he uses when he's saying I'm making a point here. I want you to listen carefully to what I'm saying. He's saying the gospel I have, it wasn't something that was taught me. It wasn't taught me by Peter, James or John. It didn't come from my fertile brain. And he was a brilliant man. He was a genius. He said oh, it didn't come from me. It Didn't come from other people. I wasn't taught it. It was a direct Revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ. He took me under his wing and personally gave me this gospel. He's saying it was a supernatural revelation that I had. It's not some man-made philosophy, not something like Aristotle and Plato. And John Stott said this, he says, the magnitude of his claim is remarkable. What Paul is saying, if you think about it, Stott is saying, it's remarkable. He is affirming that his message is not his message, but God's message, that his gospel is not his gospel, it's God's gospel, that his words are not his words, but they're God's words. And he goes on to say this, this is what we have from verses 11 and 12 on through the end of the chapter, and we'll get back to verses 6 through 9 here in just a minute. But he says, if you don't believe what I'm telling you, That it's a divine revelation. He says, let me fill you in on a few things that convince you of that. He says, first of all, if you would look at my past life, why would I preach a gospel that leads men to Jesus and his church? That's what he's basically saying here. Look in verses 13 to 14. He says, for you have heard of my former conduct, my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God beyond measure. And tried to destroy it. And I advanced in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries in my own nation. Being more exceedingly zealous for the traditions of my father. He says, look, before, before I had that Damascus Road experience. He says, my goal wasn't just to persecute the church. I was out to actually destroy the whole thing. I wanted to level it to the ground. That was my purpose. That's what I live for. And he says, my ambition wasn't. To preach the gospel. My ambition was to outdo all of the people my age, whoever, outdo them, not in the gospel, but in the traditions of the fathers. That was my goal. That was all I was after. He's basically telling them, Y'all need to understand my background. I was a fanatical Jewish bigot. He was. He would have hated Gentiles. Why is he going to be an apostle to the Gentiles? And he says, I'm devoted to the traditions of the fathers. He's like, what you need to understand is all during that time, I was in no frame of mind to become an apostle of Jesus and preach his gospel. I hated him is what he's telling them. But secondly, he said, God had other plans. He's the one that had other plans. It wasn't me. He says, I was bent on destroying the church, but he stopped me in my tracks. That's what he says here in verse 15. Look what he goes on to say. He talks about how zealous he was for. Destroying the church in Judaism But there's that great but In verse 15 But that's where basically the breaks went on Is what that but's telling us But when it pleased God Who separated me from my mother's womb And called me through his grace To reveal his son in me That I might preach him among the Gentiles What's he saying? The whole reason there That I am now doing what I'm doing Is because God did it all He's saying, God had plans for me that I couldn't override. I had other plans, but God overrode my plans. And he said, and when did those start to take place? He's saying, they took place for me before I was ever born. Isn't that what he says? Separated from my mother's womb. Isaiah says the exact same thing. Separated from my mother's womb. In Jeremiah, and Jeremiah 1, he was told this by the Lord. Young Jeremiah, the Lord told him, he says, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I sanctified you and I ordained you a prophet to the nations. And then there was a point of time, though, on that Damascus road when that became reality. God, by his grace, stopped him. He was fighting God. And God, in his love and his mercy, stopped him, put him to the ground, and opened his eyes. The next thing he says, and he gave a revelation of Jesus Christ in me. And really, what he's describing there is what happens to all of us. That should be all of our experience. Not to be called an apostle. We maybe aren't going to have this dramatic divine revelation. He needed that. That was the qualification of an apostle. You had to see the Lord Jesus Christ. But we don't have that. I haven't seen him with my eyes like Paul has. But I'll tell you one thing It says all of us here We were predestinated before the world was ever created That's when our election took place That's when God chose us He didn't chose you 5 years ago However long ago, 20 years ago, 30 Whenever you got saved That's not when He decided to choose you If you're His, He chose you before anything was ever created You were already His then There just came a point in time When His grace hammered you down to the ground Like Paul We all had our own plans I've talked about this before Our own plans. That that was me. I had my own plans, my own ambitions, what I was going to do with my life. And God stopped me in my tracks. You're not going any further than that. And oh, I'm telling you, you, my plans and ambitions totally reversed. And what happens? Your eyes are open to see who the Lord Jesus Christ is. And I give you my life, Lord. Causes and brings you to repentance and you make him your Lord. That's what happened. And thirdly, at the end here, verses 18 to 20, he answers the charge that he received this gospel from the other apostles. They're like, this isn't your gospel. You got it from the people in Jerusalem and then you modified it to make people happy, these Gentiles. That's what he was being accused of because look what he says. He answers that here at the end of 16. He says that I might preach him among the Gentiles. The end of verse 16. I did not immediately, when he got this revelation, confer with flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem. He said, I didn't go there to those who were apostles before me. Ah, He said, I went to Arabia, returned again to Damascus. Then three years later, I went up to Jerusalem to see Peter and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. Now concerning the things which I write to you, indeed, Before God I do not lie And he says afterward I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia And I was unknown by face to the churches of Judea Which were in Christ So he's saying when God revealed himself to me And revealed the gospel to me He said I didn't run off to Jerusalem To talk to the other apostles and get their approval of this message He said instead I went to Arabia for three years What did he do there? We don't know exactly But I would think he was probably meditating on the Old Testament scriptures. He was probably praying. He was having God more fully reveal his plan and his message to him. I would imagine. I think I could safely say that's probably what he he did. And after those three years, it said he basically went 15 days. He spent two weeks with Peter. But what he's telling him is he didn't go there to get the gospel message to be instructed in the gospel. But it says here in the New King James He went to see Peter, but the Greek word for see doesn't just mean to see him or it means to get acquainted with him or to visit, to get information. When Peter and Paul got together, it was just for two weeks. It wasn't to get the gospel message. They're probably not talking about the weather. Would you think those two guys? I don't think so, but he probably wanted to hear from Peter get some information. He probably wanted to hear from Peter. Peter could give him firsthand accounts of the Lord's ministry, the works he did, things he said. Paul didn't have to have every single thing that we read in our four gospels revealed to him supernaturally, did he? He went and talked to Peter. And I'm sure that what God had shown Paul about the gospel in this ministry to the Gentiles, I'm sure Peter benefited from that. Because we know Peter wrote later, he said. You know, Paul, he's got scriptures and they are hard to understand. So he realizes this Paul's God using him in a special way. And he's a deep man, wrote most of the New Testament. So what do we learn from this first part of what I'm talking about here? And that is the simple thing is that the gospel we hear, this gospel we have, this Bible, this truth, this saving gospel is not from man. And I'm telling you, Muslims can't say that. They can't. It was from a man who was having seizures all the time and had these revelations. People were telling him, you need to just knock off what you're talking about. But not Paul. This is a supernatural divine word. The gospel message It's from God. Here's the thing we need to see. If we reject the gospel, the good news, we're not just rejecting man's word, man's opinion. Are we? We're rejecting God's word, what he's provided, how he wants us to live what the good news is from him, and that is serious. So what is this gospel that Paul preached? So actually, it's in a nutshell, if you go back to to verses 3 to 6, here it is. He says to them, grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 4, who gave himself for our sins, that is, He might deliver us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. That's the gospel in a nutshell. It is. Jesus gave himself, willingly sacrificed himself for our sins. Not for his sins, for Our sins, he willingly sacrificed himself. And Paul does go on to explain that a little more fully in the chapter three, where he says Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. So our sins had left us cursed, but he took that curse that was ours and do us. He took that and bore that in our place for us. He gave himself to become a curse for us. And what was the purpose It says there, who gave himself for our sins, that, and that is always a purpose word, that he might deliver us from this present evil age. The word deliver doesn't give the full sense of the Greek word, because it means not just to deliver, but to deliver someone from peril or confining circumstances, to set free or rescue. It's a strong word, this word deliver. So it's used to describe in the New Testament. It's used to describe Israel's deliverance from Egyptian bondage. That delivered his rescue from peril. Peter's rescue from the peril of Herod's sword. That word deliver. And the rescue of Paul from a lynch mob in Acts 23. It means you're in trouble and you need deliverance. And that's what Jesus did. He delivered us from what? Rescued us from what? Paul says from this present evil age present evil age Satan rules as the God of this world this present evil age and what's the result of that just look around you in this present evil age sin dominates sickness demonic influences are all over the place pleasure is king every man does that which is right in his own eyes and it's a perilous time isn't it that's what second Timothy three says and it's going to become more perilous But Paul's saying here that Jesus died to rescue us from this age of peril. So like I said, we're living, whether we realize it or not, in two ages at once. Because we can look all around us and physically see we're living in this present evil age. But there is also an age which is called the age to come. And when you're born again, you begin to experience that age to come at that point. The new creation. As a result of the resurrection. When the resurrection happened, the age to come has begun. When he came to this earth to die, the new age has begun. It just isn't fully manifested, is it? But we can start to experience the new age now. Not the new age. (laughs) Not the demonic new age, but the new age which is to come. John Stott said this, quoting one more time, it says, The purpose of Christ's death, therefore, was not only to bring us forgiveness, But that having been forgiven, we should live a new life, the life of the age to come. And that is the gospel. The good news that in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, the kingdom of God has arrived and has invaded this present age. So the Greek word for gospel or good news, it's used 77 times in the New Testament as a noun. The gospel to preach the gospel is also used 77 times as a verb. Now, it's not always it could be translated preach the good news or preach the gospel. Sometimes it's just translated in our Bibles as preached. But 77 times preach the good news and looking at how that word is used. The good news is going to define what the good news is. It's broad. It's not just the forgiveness of sins. That's included. That's part of it. But Paul said to those in Lystra, this is Acts 14 when he's in Galatia, he healed this lame man, if you remember. And they came and they're like, the gods have come down to us and they're wanting to sacrifice to him and Barnabas. And Paul's telling them, wait a minute, don't worship us. This miracle had nothing to do with this. This was done by the living God. He says, there's a living God, not these dead idols that you all pray to and worship and don't do anything for you. You hope maybe something will happen. And here's what he tells them, Acts 14, 15, Paul says, we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. And praise God, we serve. That's good news, isn't it? Well, I don't serve a dead God. They can't do anything for me. What is that song we sing? The Lord liveth and blessed be the rock and the God of my salvation. I love that part of that song. The Lord liveth. Most people in this world are serving a dead God. It can't do a thing for them. And that's the gospel. That's part of the gospel. The good news, we serve a living God. And not only that there is a living God who created all things, but that this living God reigns over all. Now, Paul talks in Romans 10 About the need for gospel preachers. Romans 10, he says, how then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And Paul then goes on to quote Isaiah 52, 7. And it says this. He just doesn't quote the whole verse. Isaiah 52, 7 says, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news who proclaims peace who brings glad tidings of good things who proclaims salvation or deliverance and who says to zion your god reigns and the picture is israel has been in bondage they've been oppressed for their sins and on the mountains surrounding the city come these messengers that shout down to them deliverance has come because this oppression is going to cease because your god reigns and that's the gospel message Isn't it? That's good news. The risen Lord Jesus Christ. The New Testament tells us he reigns over all. Ephesians 1 says, The power which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over the church. And so the good news is that Jesus Christ is right now reigning and ruling. All things are under his feet. And as we've been taught, we're seated with him in heavenly places. Now, it hasn't been fully manifested. Obviously, his reign hasn't come, but he is still reigning in heaven So the kingdom of God has come. The new age has arrived. Like I said, not completely manifested. But here's what Jesus preached. He came. He said, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel or the good news because he's telling them the kingdom of God has come. Is what he's telling them. You don't have to wait. And so where is the kingdom of God? Where should that be manifested now on the earth? Right here in the church. That's what the gifts are all about, because there's going to be healing and there's not going to be people having demons. They need to be manifesting, they need to be delivered of in the age that is to come right in the kingdom of God. And Jesus is going to rule and reign. There aren't going to be rebels in heaven. There aren't going to be people that say, I'm going to steal my neighbor's car or bike or ox or whatever. That's not going to happen there, is it? He's going to be reigning. Everyone will be happily submitted to him. And that's the way it should be in the church. Happily submitted to the Lord Jesus Christ in his word. 443, Jesus said to them, I much preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well. For I was sent for this purpose. I'm saying that's the good news. The kingdom of God is here. Don't have to wait for it. I think some people are waiting. We don't have to wait for it. So the angels, they appear to the shepherds in the fields and it wasn't on one christmas eve night either it really wasn't but they did an angel appeared to the shepherds in the field and it said they're out there in those fields in the night doing their business and it said all of a sudden this angel appears and it said the glory of god shone all around them that would have been like a spotlight like you could not imagine i mean it was all of a sudden this bright image out of darkness and they didn't have lights And they said they feared when they saw that, when those angels saw that. Fear overtook the shepherd. And the angel then said to them, don't be afraid. He said, for behold, I bring you good news, the gospel of great joy, which will be for all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Angels tell him, I got great news of joy. King is coming, and he is a Savior. Now, listen for the king. It is going to be the king through all ages, and for him to be a Savior, what does he have to do? He has to die and be raised from the dead. And that's why this is part of the gospel. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul told them, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the good news, for I delivered to you first of all that which I also received. Here's the good news that Christ died our sins according to the scriptures and that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures so for the king to have people in his kingdom and the only way for the people that he had chosen for this kingdom to enter in that kingdom the king had to die and rise again so the only way that this king can have the people he's chosen to be in his kingdom he has to die for him, doesn't he And he has to rise again. So he's the firstborn of, we've said this, of the new creation, the second Adam. That's part of the gospel. We know that. Everyone knows that. Every denomination practically knows that. But another major part of the good news of the gospel is the promise of the Holy Spirit. It's the reason Christ died, that he might send his Holy Spirit to live in his redeemed people. So you're in Galatians 1, I believe, still turn over to... Chapter 3, and look in verses 13 to 14. And we read there, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. There he's taken our sin, our punishment upon him, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And here's the purpose word again. 14, that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, that, what? We might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith that's part of the gospel that's a major part of the gospel the coming of the Holy Spirit so Peter told the crowd that gathered in Acts chapter 2 when they heard them speaking in tongues here's what he told him he said this Jesus God has raised up of which we are all witnesses and he says therefore being exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit he poured out this which you now see and hear So, Jesus on Acts 2, He tells the crowd, I mean, that's a big thing of the good news of the Gospel. And they're speaking in tongues, and He says that He exalted Jesus. this, This Lord that you crucified has been risen and exalted that He might pour out this Holy Spirit that you now see and hear. That's the manifestation of the Holy Spirit. And so, the good news is that we can be brought back into a living, experiential fellowship with God through the indwelling Holy Spirit, through His presence And that's no small thing. the last point I want to make, I mean, we could go on about the gospel, is that it has brought salvation, we know this, for the whole man, not just spiritually, but physically. Now, in Romans 10, Paul went on to say, but they have not all obeyed the gospel or the good news. And he says, for Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? That's the beginning of What? Isaiah 53. And what is the report that he says they didn't all obey? It's right there on the wall. That's what he went on to quote Isaiah 53. Surely he has borne our pains and carried our diseases, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. Part of the good news <laughs> is that healing and deliverance from demonic oppression is our present inheritance. That is good news but the bottom line is not all are willing to obey that good news that's what isaiah is raising the question who has believed our report who's believed that report right there that that's really true because a lot of people are doubting it now that it happens the way god says it happens they're doubting it now and that's the question to whom has the arm of the lord been revealed arm of the lord means his power and his might to who has that been shown when Jesus came to Nazareth in Luke 4, he announced the gospel. He said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the good news, the gospel to the poor. He sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And it said, after he said that, he closed the book. He read out it. Isaiah it says, All the eyes were fastened on him, and he looked at them and he said, You don't have to wait for this. Everybody says, Oh, your healing is going to come in the hereafter. He says, No, he says, Today is what he said. This scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Amen. We're not waiting for it to be fulfilled, are we? No, it happened 2,000 years ago. But if you read that account in Luke 4, When he told the Jews who were God's people that even though it was available and God is willing to provide this blessing, he's basically telling them, you won't believe it. You'll refuse to believe what I'm telling you. And he goes on to give two examples. He uses the example of Naaman the leper and the widow of Zarephath. Both were Gentiles who were willing to believe the good news that came to them. And he says, but... He said there were many lepers in Israel at the time of Naaman. And yet it was Naaman that got healed. None of them. And he said there was a lot of widows that had needs. None of their needs got provided. But this widow, this Gentile widow. And what's he telling them? Because he's talking, this is Nazareth he's talking to. And we know that Nazareth was the one place he went where it said he could do no mighty works. Why? Because of their unbelief and people in unbelief get mad when they're confronted because these people did because what was their reaction to that? Was their reaction to that Lord help mine unbelief? No you know what they did? They're going to take him and throw him over a cliff because don't tell us we don't have faith and our relationship with God isn't right. I hear ministers all the time saying don't you ever can you believe somebody is so cruel to tell somebody they didn't get healed because they didn't have faith. I, I mean Jesus did. What are they talking about? He did more than once. So that's something to think about. But the good news, God is living. God reigns. The King has come to be our savior. He suffered and died for our sins, risen from the dead, poured out his blessed holy spirit, promised to give us healing, deliverance, heavenly provision. He's brought life and power over sin that's good news that's the gospel i just gave you the gospel there i mean that's not the faith message that's not faith assembly that's not hobart freeman that's not tom hamilton that's the new testament it really is what it is it's not some man's message it's the message of the new testament and all of that what it centers on a person doesn't it the Lord Jesus Christ and the cross, like we talked about last week. All of the good news flows from the cross, flows out of the cross. And so that's why Paul says, that's all I want to talk about. I glory in the cross. That's where it's all at. It's not in all these things of the Old Testament and holidays and, and rituals and circumcision and Sabbath observance. All that is pointing to the cross, to the Lord Jesus Christ fulfilled in him. But the cross is where it's at. It's a free, undeserved gift from Almighty God to undeserving sinners. It's grace. That's the gospel. And so Paul, going back to Galatians 1, he cannot believe that they have turned away from this glorious good news. Why would anyone? Why would anyone do that? And so look what he says in verses 6 and 7. He says, I marvel that you're turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another. There isn't a different gospel, he's telling them. But there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. He's saying, I marvel, I'm astonished, I'm amazed, I cannot believe it, is what he's telling them. You're turning away from him so soon and turning away, that Greek word, means to transfer one's allegiance it's used of soldiers who would desert the army and go to another like the famous benedict arnold turning away that's what it means it's used of politicians in ancient greek literature who would switch from one political view to another they would switch from being a democrat to a republican so to speak but paul's complaint isn't that they've left his army or they've switched their political opinion but that they have deserted god Look what it says there in verse 6. He says, I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him. Turning away from him. He's accusing them of being spiritual deserters, religious turncoats. Turning from him that has called them by his grace. They have left. And he says, I can't believe how quick it's happened. How quickly you've left your first love. That's really what he's telling them, isn't it? And it's Revelation 2, the church at Ephesus. If you read what was said there, John wrote that they not only left their first love, but they left because of that. What follows when you leave your first love is your first works. So they were still doing works, but they weren't works that were done out of love for the Lord Jesus Christ. And that was the problem. And how does that happen? How does that happen? How does this happen? What happened to these people in Galatia? How does that happen to us? So when your communion with the Lord breaks down, so do the works that follow. They become then works of the flesh. Dead works may outwardly appear to be the same thing. So to illustrate that, just think about a marriage. So a marriage, generally, they begin with two people. Just saw it yesterday. Commit themselves in love and obedience. Faithful, true commitment that is usually how marriages start don't they most of them Then what happens though communication breaks down the outward commitment though when that communication breaks down it doesn't stop right away does it it doesn't but eventually it just becomes an empty shell and there's no heart in it and the next thing you know when there's no heart in it it's like what's the point And there's affairs that begin, fights begin, adultery begins, and all of that sometimes and many times in America ends in divorce. Desertion. Isn't that what divorce is? Some people maybe don't get divorced, but they desert their mate and their family. I mean, plenty of cases of that happening. That's what happens. Spurgeon said this on Revelation 2. I thought this was really, really good. He says, you have abandoned the love you had at first. I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. He's quoting that verse. This is what Spurgeon says. He says, what love we had for our Savior the first time He forgave our sins. When we first loved Him, how passionate we were. There was not a single thing in the Bible that we did not consider most precious. There was not one command we did not think to be like fine gold. Where did we lose our first love if we have lost it? Have we lost it in the world? Too much of the world is a bad thing for any person. Have we lost our first love by spending too much time with worldly people? Have we forgotten how much we owe Christ? Have we neglected communion with Christ? There are a thousand possible reasons, but each person must search his own heart. If we have lost the love we had at first, we must seek to have it restored. And though we are children of God, if we have lost our first love, there is trouble near at hand. Love and purity go together. The one who loves is pure. The one who loves little will find his purity decrease until it becomes marred and polluted. The Lord disciplines the one he loves and he is sure to discipline us When we sin, I thought that was really good. So here's the trouble is when salvation is not a person, when it's not a loving commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ. But when your salvation becomes adherence to principles such as church attendance, giving, reading, praying, Evangelizing. You're trusting in your external obedience, not in the person of Jesus Christ and his work on the cross. All of that external stuff is good, but only if it comes from a heart that's in communion with the Lord. That's the way it works. Paul said this in Romans 6 But God be thanked that though you were the slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. I'm about done. really am. I'm not going to be like Brother Hampton. I'm getting ready to close, and a half an hour later, I'm closing. Just kidding. But when Paul said this to them, that I'm astonished, verse 6, I marvel you're turning away so soon from Him who called you in to the grace of Christ. He's referring to what? What he's referring to is the golden calf incident that happened back in Exodus 32. So, Israel had just been delivered from Egypt. They're rejoicing in the blood of the Lamb, the parting of the Red Sea, the destruction of the Egyptians, their enemies. And here's what they sang. Moses and the children of Israel sang this on the shore. I will sing unto the Lord. We sing it. For He has triumphed gloriously. The horse and its rider He has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and song, and He has become my salvation. And Israel said, He is my God, and I will praise Him. They said, My Father's God, and I will exalt Him. And at that point for them, all is well with their soul. They're happy. God's their Father. I will exalt Him. Oh, the Lord is my God. And it wasn't much longer. And Moses went up on a mountain, and he was there for their liking just a little too long. And Aaron and the people made a golden calf, and the party began. God was quickly, here's the problem, he's quickly in their rearview mirror at that point, isn't he? They've lost their relationship with him. All this confession in this song they made, it was no longer there. And here's what the Lord said Exodus 32 78, it says, And the Lord said to Moses, Go, get down, for your people, whom you brought out of the land of Egypt, have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way which I commanded them. And the Galatians, Paul saying, You're doing the same thing Israel did back then. How quickly you've been removed from the gospel, the good news which I've given you. I marvel turning away from Him so soon who has called you by the grace of Christ to a different gospel. Only one gospel. And that's the message. Turning away from the good news, are we doing that? We have to ask ourselves, all of us, are we turning away from it? The good news, the gospel was preached by Jesus, directly given to Paul, preached by him, preached by all the apostles. And here is where it is for us in this Bible. There ain't going to be any new revelation. It's right here what we need to know about what the gospel is. It's a divine gospel, a divine words from the lips of God. And we need to take it seriously. Listen, Hebrews 3, it says this, For indeed, the good news was preached to us as well as to them. He's talking about the Israelites in the desert. The good news was preached to us as well as to them, but the word which they heard did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. For who having heard, it says they rebelled. Who heard? Who rebelled? It says, indeed, was it not all who came out of Egypt led by Moses? They heard the good news. They wouldn't mix faith with it. We're not going. We heard the good news. It's good news that land's flowing with milk and honey. Well, we're not going in there. We're not trusting in the living God and his power. And he says, ah, that's not good. That's an evil heart of unbelief. And they perished in the waters. That's what he says. So he says today, if you hear his voice, don't be like them. Don't harden your heart. There's a book titled God is the Gospel. I would say the Lord Jesus Christ is the good news in the gospel. And he's telling the Galatians here that when they leave the gospel, they're not just leaving a message. They're leaving God. That's what he's telling. You so soon departed from him for another gospel. God is the gospel deserting the Lord and here's what the Lord is telling them and he's telling us he's calling us back to him to return to our first love and to be like Paul what he goes on to say we'll see in in chapter 2 the life that I now live I live by faith in the Son of God and we need to see that he loved me and gave himself for me and that'll make all the difference in the world so we need to just press in Press in and know that love, and love Him in return. And it comes through meditating on the good news. Amen, amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for the word and the warning that you've given us today. That you keep us, Lord. We ask that you'll draw us to you, and you say, if we draw near near to you, that you will draw nigh to us. And we thank you for this gospel that you've given us from your lips. That we not take it lightly, but also, Lord, that we not turn away from you, the living God. Who was willing to die on our behalf and to give us all the glorious blessings of the age to come. And I just ask, Lord, that you'll open our eyes to see your power and that that power is available to us as a present reality. We don't have to wait to experience it. And I just ask you to do that for everyone in this room. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.